be sure to follow Send Me to Sleep on your preferred podcast player so you never miss an episode and a good night's rest. Welcome to Send Me to Sleep, the place to find a good night's rest. My name's Andrew. Thanks for joining me and for taking this time for yourself to ensure you get a peaceful night's sleep. Tonight, I'll be reading 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea, chapters 18 and 19. In the previous chapters, our adventurers encountered gigantic sharks and sunken ships before finishing their seabed excursion. In the following chapters, our intrepid explorers investigate an underwater wreckage. If you haven't already, find a nice place to get cosy. Take a deep, relaxing breath. And settle your body in whatever way feels most comfortable. Now all you need to do is follow the sound of my voice. So let your eyes fall heavy and your breath soften as we settle in for a peaceful night's sleep. Chapter 18 Vanikoro This terrible spectacle was the forerunner of the series of maritime catastrophes that the Nautilus was destined to meet within its route. As long as it went through more frequented waters, we often saw the hulls of shipwrecked vessels that were rotting in the depths, and deeper down, cannons, bullets, anchors, chains, and a thousand other iron materials eaten up by rust. However, on the 11th of December, we sighted the Pomatu Islands, the old dangerous group of Bonneville, that extended over a space of 500 leagues at ESE to WNW from the island Ducci to that of Lazareff. This group covers an area of 370 square leagues, and it is formed of 60 groups of islands, among which the Gambia group is remarkable, over which France exercises sway. These are coral islands, slowly raised but continuous, created by the daily work of Polypi. Then this new island will be joined later on the neighboring groups, 
and a fifth continent will stretch from New Zealand and New Caledonia, and from thence to the Marquesas. One day, when I was suggesting this theory to Captain Nemo, he replied coldly, The Earth does not want new continents, but new men. Chance had conducted the Nautilus towards the island of Clermont Tonnerre, one of the most curious of the group. That was discovered in 1822 by Captain Bell of the Minerva. I could study now the mandraporal system to which are due the islands in this ocean. Mandrapores, which must not be mistaken for corals, have a tissue lined with a calcareous crust, and the modifications of its structure have induced Monsieur Milne Edwards, my worthy master, to class them into five sections. The animalcule that the marine polypus secretes live by millions at the bottom of their cells. Their calcareous deposits become rocks, reefs, and large and small islands. Here they form a ring surrounding a little inland lake that communicates with the sea by means of gaps. There they make barriers of reefs like those on the coasts of New Caledonia and the various Pomerton Islands. In other places, like those at Reunion and at Maurice, they raise fringed reefs, high, straight walls near which the depth of the ocean is considerable. Some cable's length off the shores of the island of Clermont, I admired the gigantic work accomplished by these microscopical workers. These walls are specially the work of those madriporous known as milliporous, porites, madriporous, and astraeus. These polypi are found particularly in the rough beds of the sea, near the surface, and consequently, it is from the upper part that they begin their operations, in which they bury themselves, by degrees, with the debris of the secretions that support them. Such is, at least, Darwin's theory, who thus explains the formation of atolls, a superior theory, to my mind, to that given of the foundation of the madriporical works, summits of mountains or volcanoes, that are submerged some feet below the level of the sea. I could observe closely these curious walls, for perpendicularly they were more than three hundred yards deep, and our electric sheets lighted up this calcareous matter brilliantly. Replying to a question Concier asked me 
As to the time these colossal barriers took to be raised, I astonished him much by telling him that learned men reckoned it about the eighth of an inch in a hundred years. Towards evening, Clermont-Torrière was lost in the distance, and the route of the Nautilus was sensibly changed. After having crossed the Tropic of Capricorn in 135 degrees longitude, it sailed WNW, making again for the tropical zone. Although the summer sun was very strong, we did not suffer from heat, for at 15 or 20 fathoms below the surface, the temperature did not rise above from 10 or 12 degrees. On the 15th of December, we left to the east the bewitching group of the societies and the graceful Tahiti, Queen of the Pacific. I saw in the morning, some miles to the windward, the elevated summits of the island. These waters furnished our table with excellent fish, mackerel, bonitos, and some varieties of a sea serpent. On the 25th of December, the Nautilus sailed into the midst of the New Hebrides, discovered by Quiros in 1606, and that Bourgainville explored in 1768, and to which Cook gave its present name in 1773. This group is composed principally of nine large islands that form a band of 120 leagues north-north-south to south-south-west, between 15 degrees and 2 degrees south latitude, and 164 degrees and 168 degrees longitude. We passed tolerably near the island of Aurora, and that at noon looked like a mass of green woods surmounted by a peak of great height. That day being Christmas Day, Ned Land seemed to regret sorely the non-celebration of Christmas the family fate of which Protestants are so fond. I had not seen Captain Nemo for a week, when, on the morning of the 27th, he came into the large drawing room, always seeming as if he had seen you five minutes before. I was busily tracing the route of the Nautilus on the planisphere. The captain came up to me, put his finger on one spot on the chart, and said this single word. Vanikoro. 
The effect was magical. It was the name of the island on which La Perouse had been lost. I rose suddenly. The Nautilus has brought us to Vanikoro, I said. Yes, Professor, said the captain. And I can visit the celebrated islands where the Boussole and the Astrolabe struck. If you like, Professor. When shall we be there? We are there now. Followed by Captain Nemo, I went up onto the platform and greedily scanned the horizon. To the northeast, two volcanic islands emerged of unequal size, surrounded by a coral reef that measured forty miles in circumference. We were close to Vanikoro, really the one to which Dumont d'Urville gave the name of the Isle de la Recherche, and exactly facing the little harbour of Vanu, situated in six degrees four feet south latitude and 164 degrees 32 feet east longitude. The earth seemed covered with verdure from the shore to the summits in the interior that were crowned by Mount Capogo, 476 feet high. The Nautilus having passed the outer belt of rocks by a narrow strait, found itself among breakers where the sea was from thirty to forty fathoms deep. Under the verdant shade of some mangroves, I perceived some savages who appeared greatly surprised at our approach. In the long black body, moving between wind and water, did they not see some formidable cetacean that they regarded with suspicion? Just then, Captain Nemo asked me what I knew about the wreck of La Perouse. Only what everyone knows, Captain, I replied. And could you tell me what everyone knows about it? He inquired ironically. Easily. I related to him all that the last works of Dumont d'Urville had made known, works from which the following is a brief account. La Perouse and his second. Captain de Langle were sent by Louis XVI in 1785 on a voyage of circumnavigation. They embarked in the corvettes Boussole and the Astrolabe, neither of which were again heard of. In 1791, the French government 
ghastly uneasy as to the fate of these two sloops, manned two large merchantmen, the Resheresh and the Esperance, which left Brest on the 28th of September under the command of Brunei d'Entrecasteur. Two months after, they learned from Bowen, commander of the Albemarle, that the debris of shipwrecked vessels had been seen on the coast of New Georgia. But d'Entrecasteur, ignoring this communication, rather uncertain, besides, directed his course towards the Admiralty Islands, mentioned in a report of Captain Hunter's as being the place where La Perouse was wrecked. They sought in vain. The Esperance and the Resheresh passed before Van Coro without stopping there, and, in fact, this voyage was most disastrous, as it cost Don Tricasteur his life, and those of two of his lieutenants, besides several of his crew. Captain Dillon, a shrewd old Pacific sailor, was the first to find unmistakable traces of the wreck. On the 15th of May, 1824, his vessel, the St. Patrick, passed close to Ticapia, one of the New Hebrides. There, Alaska came alongside in a canoe, sold him the handle of a sword in silver that bore the print of characters engraved on the hilt. The Lascar pretended that six years before, during a stay at Vanikoro, he had seen two Europeans that had belonged to some vessels that had run aground on the reefs some years ago. Dylan guessed that he meant La Perouse, whose disappearance had troubled the whole world. He tried to get on to Vanikoro, where, according to the Lascar, he would find numerous debris of the wreckage, but winds and tides prevented him. Dylan returned to Calcutta. There, he interested the Asiatic Society and the Indian Company in his discovery. A vessel, to which was given the name of Resheresh, was put at his disposal, and he set out 23rd of January, 1827, accompanied by a French agent. The Resheresh, after touching at several points in the Pacific, cast anchor before Vanikoro, 7th of July, 1827, in that same harbour of Vanu where the Nautilus was at this time. There is collected numerous relics of the wreck. Iron, anchors, pulley strops, 
swivel guns, an 18-pound shot, fragments of astronomical instruments, a piece of crown work, and a bronze clock bearing this inscription, Bazin Marfait, the mark of the foundry of the arsenal at Brest, about 1785. There could be no further doubt. Dylan, having made all inquiries, stayed in the unlucky place till October. Then he quitted Vanikoro and directed his course towards New Zealand, put into Calcutta, 7th of April, 1828, and returned to France, where he was warmly welcomed by Charles X. But at the same time, without knowing Dylan's movements, Dumont de Ville had already set out to find the scene of the wreck, and they had learned from a whaler that some medals and a cross of St. Louis had been found in the hands of some natives of the Louisiade and New Caledonia. De Montduville, commander of the Astrolabe, had then sailed, and two months after Dylan had left Vanikoro, had put into Hobart Town. There he learned the results of Dylan's inquiries, and found that a certain James Hobbs, second lieutenant of the Union of Calcutta, after landing on an island, situated 8 degrees 18 feet south latitude and 156 degrees 30 feet east longitude, had seen some iron bars and red stuffs used by the natives of these parts. Dumont de Ville, much perplexed and not knowing how to credit the reports of low-class journals, decided to follow Dylan's track. On the 10th of February, 1828, the astrolabe appeared off Tikopia and took as guide and interpreter a deserter found on the island, made his way to Vanikoro, sighted it on the 12th instant, lay among the reefs until the 14th, and not until the 20th did he cast anchor within the barrier in the harbour of Vanu. On the 23rd, several officers went round the island and brought back some unimportant trifles. The natives, adopting a system of denials and evasions, refused to take them to the unlucky place. This ambiguous conduct led them to believe that the natives had ill-treated the castaways, and indeed, they seemed to fear Dumont de Ville, and had come to avenge Le Perouse and his unfortunate crew. However, on the 26th, appeased by some presents, and understanding that they had no reprisal to fear, 
They led Monsieur Jacario to the scene of the wreck. There, in three or four fathoms of water, between the reefs of Paco and Vanu, lay anchors, cannons, peaks of lead and iron, embedded in the limey concretions. The large boat and the whaler belonging to the astrolabe were sent to this place, and, not without some difficulty, their crew hauled up an anchor weighing 1,800 pounds, a brass gun, some pigs of iron, and two copper swivel guns. Dumont de Ville, questioning the natives, learned too that Le Perouse, after losing both his vessels on the reefs of the island, had constructed a smaller boat, only to be lost a second time. Where? No one knew. But the French government, fearing that Dumont de Ville was not acquainted with Dillon's movements, had sent the sloop Bayonnaise, commanded by Legorant de Tromeline, to Vanicoro, which had been stationed on the west coast of America. The Bayonnaise cast her anchor before Vanicoro some months after the departure of the astrolabe, but found no new document, but stated that the natives had respected the monument to La Perouse. That is the substance of what I told Captain Nemo. So, he said, no one knows now where the third vessel perished that was constructed by the castaways on the island of Vanikoro. No one knows. Captain Nemo said nothing, but signed to me to follow him into the large saloon. The Nautilus sank several yards below the waves. The panels were opened. I hastened to the aperture, and under the crustaceans of coral, covered with fungi, siphonules, alcyons, madriporos, through the myriads of charming fish, shirelles, glyphosidri, pomferides, diacops, and holocentres, I recognized certain debris that drags had not been able to tear up. Iron stirrups, anchors, cannons, bullets, capstan fittings, the stems of a ship, all objects clearly proving the wreck of some vessel, and now carpeted with living flowers. While I was looking on this desolate scene, Captain Nemo said, in a sad voice, Commander La Perouse set out 7th of December, 1785, 
visis vessel la boussole and the asteroid. He first cast anchor at Botany Bay, visited the friendly isles, New Caledonia, then directed his course towards Santa Cruz and put into Namoka, one of the Apai group. Then his vessel struck on the unknown reef of Vanikoro. The boussole, which went first, ran aground on the southerly coast. The astrolabe went to its help and ran aground too. The first vessel was destroyed almost immediately. The second, stranded under the wind, resisted some days. The natives made the castaways welcome. They installed themselves in the island and constructed a smaller boat with the debris of the two large ones. Some sailors stayed willingly at Vanikoro. The others, weak and ill, set out with Silapurus. They directed their course towards the Solomon Islands, and there they perished with everything on the westerly coast of the chief island of the group between Cape's deception and satisfaction. How do you know that? By this, that I found on the spot where was the last wreck. Captain Nemo showed me a tin plate box, stamped with the French arms and corroded by the salt water. He opened it, and I saw a bundle of papers, yellow but still readable. They were the instructions of the naval minister to Commander Le Perouse, annotated in the margins in Louis XVI's handwriting. Ah, it is a fine death for a sailor, said Captain Nemo at last. A coral tomb makes a quiet grave, and I trust that I and my comrades will find no other. Chapter 19 Torres Strait During the night of the 27th or 28th of December, the Nautilus left the shores of Vanikoro with great speed. Her course was southwesterly, and in three days she had gone over the 750 leagues that separated from La Perouse's group and the southeast point of Papua. Early on the 1st of January, 1863, Concier joined me on the platform. Master, will you permit me to wish you a happy new year? What? Concier... Exactly as if I were at Paris in my study, 
at the Jardin des Plantes. Well, I accept your good wishes and thank you for them. Only, I will ask you what you mean by a happy new year under our circumstances. Do you mean that the new year that will bring us to the end of our imprisonment, or the year that sees us continue this strange voyage? Really, I do not know how to answer, Master. We are sure to see curious things, and for the last two months we have not had time for dullness. The last marvel is always the most astonishing, and if we continue this progression, I do not know how it will end. It is my opinion that we shall never again see the like. I think then, with no offence to master, that a new year would be one in which we could see everything. On the 2nd of January, we had made 11,340 miles, or 5,250 French leagues, since our starting point in the Japan Sea. Before the ship's head stretched the dangerous shores of the Coral Sea, on the northeast coast of Australia... Our boat lay along some miles from the redoubtable bank on which Cook's vessel was lost, 10th of June, 1770. The boat in which Cook was struck on a rock, and, if it did not sink, it was owing to a piece of coral that was broken by the shock and fixed itself in the broken keel. I had wished to visit the reef, 360 leagues long, against which the sea, always rough, broke with great violence, with a noise like thunder. But just then, the inclined planes drew the Nautilus down to a great depth, and I could see nothing of the high coral walls. I had contented myself with the different specimens of fish brought up by the nets. I remarked, among others, some jamons, a species of mackerel as large as a tunny, with bluish sides and striped with transverse bands that disappeared with the animal's life. These fish followed us in shores and furnished us with very delicate food. We took also a large number of gilt heads, about one and a half inches long, tasting like dories and flying like parapets, like submarine swallows, which, in dark nights, light alternately the air and water with their phosphorescent light. Among the mollusks and zoophytes, 
I found in the meshes of the net several species of Alcyonarians, Echini, Hammers, Spurs, Dials, Serites, and Hyalei. The flora was represented by beautiful floating seaweeds, luminarii, and macrocytes impregnated with the mucilage that transudes through their pores, and among which I gathered an admirable Nemostoma genilarius that was classed among the natural curiosities of the museum. Two days after crossing the Coral Sea, 4th of January, we sighted the Papuan coast. On this occasion, Captain Nemo informed me that his intention was to get into the Indian Ocean by the Strait of Torres. His communication ended there. The Torres Straits are nearly 34 leagues wide, but they are obstructed by an innumerable quantity of islands, islets, breakers, and rocks that make its navigation almost impracticable, so that Captain Nemo took all needful precautions to cross them. The Nautilus floating betwixt wind and water went at a moderate pace. Her screw, like a cetacean's tail, beat the waves slowly. Profiting by this, I and my two companions went up onto the deserted platform. Before us was the steersman's cage, and I expected that Captain Nemo was there, directing the course of the Nautilus. I had before me the excellent charts of the Straits of Taurus, and I consulted them attentively. Round the Nautilus, the sea dashed furiously. The course of the waves, that went from southeast to northwest at the rate of two and a half miles, broke on the coral that showed itself here and there. This is a bad sea, remarked Ned Land. Detestable indeed and one that does not suit a boat like the Nautilus. The captain must be very sure of his route, for I see there are pieces of coral that would do for its keel, if only touching them slightly. Indeed, the situation was dangerous, but the Nautilus seemed to slide like magic off these rocks. I did not follow the routes of the Astrolabe and the Zeely exactly, for they proved fatal to Dumont de Ville. It bore more northwards, coasted the islands of Murray, and came back to the southwest towards Cumberland Passage. I thought it was going to pass it by 
when, going back to northwest, going back to northwest, it went through a large quantity of islands and islets, little known, towards the island sound and canal Morve. I wondered if Captain Nemo, foolishly imprudent, would steer his vessel into that pass where Dumont Deville's two corvettes touched, when, swerving again and cutting straight through to the west, he steered for the island of Gilliboa. It was then three in the afternoon. The tide began to recede, being quite full. The Nautilus approached the island that I still saw, with its remarkable border of screw pines. He stood off it at about two miles distance. Suddenly, a shock overthrew me. The Nautilus just touched a rock and stayed immovable, laying lightly to port side. When I rose, I perceived Captain Nemo and his lieutenant on the platform. They were examining the situation of the vessel and exchanging words in their incomprehensible dialect. She was situated thus. Two miles on the starboard side appeared Gilboa, stretching from north to west like an immense arm. Towards the south and east, some coral showed itself, left by the ebb. We had run aground, and in one of those seas where the tides are middling, a sorry matter for the floating of the Nautilus. However, the vessel had not suffered, for her keel was solidly joined. But... If she could neither glide off nor move, she ran the risk of being forever fastened to these rocks. And then Captain Nemo's submarine vessel would be done for. I was reflecting thus when the captain, cool and calm, always master of himself, approached me. An accident? I asked. No, an incident. An incident that will oblige you, perhaps, to become an inhabitant of this land from which you flee. Captain Nemo looked at me curiously and made a negative gesture, as much as to say that nothing would force him to set foot on terra firma again. Then he said, Besides, Monsieur Aranax, the Nautilus is not lost. It will carry you yet into the midst of the marvels of the ocean. Our voyage is only begun, and I do not wish to be deprived so soon of the honor of your company. However, Captain Nemo, I replied, 
without noticing the ironical turn of his phrase. The Nautilus ran aground in open sea. Now the tides are not strong in the Pacific, and if you cannot lighten the Nautilus, I do not see how it will be reinflated. The tides are not strong in the Pacific. You are right there, Professor. But in Torres Straits, one finds still a difference of a yard and a half between the level of the eye and low seas. Today is the 4th of January, and in five days the moon will be full. Now, I shall be very much astonished if that satellite does not raise these masses of water sufficiently and render me a service that I should indeed be indebted to her for. Having said this, Captain Nemo, followed by his lieutenant, redescended to the interior of the Nautilus. As to the vessel, it moved not, and was immovable, as if the coralline polypi had already walled it up with their indestructible cement. Well, sir, said Ned Land, who came up to me after the departure of the captain. Well, friend Ned, we will wait patiently for the tide on the ninth instant, for it appears that the moon will have the goodness to put it off again. Really? Really? And this captain is not going to cast anchor at all? Since the tide will suffice, said Concier simply. The Canadian looked at Concier, then shrugged his shoulders. Sir, you may believe me when I tell you that this piece of iron will navigate neither on nor under the sea again. It is only fit to be sold for its weight. I think, therefore, that the time has come to part company with Captain Nemo. Friend Ned, I do not despair of this stout Nautilus, as you do, and in four days we shall know what to hold to on the Pacific tides. Besides, flight might be possible if we were in sight of English or provincial coast but on the Papuan shores, it is another thing, and it will be time enough to come to that extremity of the Nautilus that does not recover itself again, which I look upon as a grave event. But do they know, at least, how to act circumspectly? There is an island. On that island, there are trees... Under those trees, torrential animals, bearers of cutlets and roast beef, to which I would willingly give a trial. In this, friend Ned is right, said Concier, and I agree with him. Could not Master obtain permission from his friend Captain Nemo to put us on land, 
if only so as not to lose the habit of treading on the solid parts of our planet. I can ask him, but he will refuse. Will Master risk it? asked Concierge. And we shall know how to rely upon the captain's amiability. To my great surprise, Captain Nemo gave me the permission I asked for, and he gave it very agreeably, without even exacting from me a promise to return to the vessel. But flight across New Guinea might be very perilous, and I should not have counseled Ned Land to attempt it. Better to be a prisoner on board the Nautilus than to fall into the hands of natives. At eight o'clock, armed with guns and hatchets, we got off the Nautilus. The sea was pretty calm. A slight breeze blew on land. Concierge and I rowing, we sped along quickly, and Ned steered in the straight passage that the breakers left between them. The boat was well handled, and moved rapidly. Ned Land could not restrain his joy. He was like a prisoner that had escaped from prison, and knew not that it was necessary to re-enter it. Meat. We're going to eat some meat. And what meat? He replied. Real game. No bread indeed. I do not say that fish is not good. We must not abuse it. But a piece of fresh venison, grilled on live coal, will agreeably vary our ordinary course. Gluttony, said Concierge. He makes my mouth water. It remains to be seen, I said. If these forests are full of game, and if the game is not such as will hunt the hunter himself. Well said, Monsieur Aranax, replied the Canadian, whose teeth seemed sharpened like the edge of a hatchet. But I will eat tiger, loin of tiger, if there is no other quadruped on this island. Friend Ned is uneasy about it, said Concierge. Whatever it may be, continued Ned Land, every animal with four paws without feathers, or with two paws without feathers, will be saluted by my first shot. Very well, Master Land's imprudences are beginning. Never fear, Monsieur Aranax, replied the Canadian. I do not want twenty-five minutes to offer you a dish of my sort. At half past eight, the Nautilus boat ran softly aground on a heavy sand, after having happily passed the coral reef 
that surrounded the island of Gilboa 